You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Isaiah 49. It opens with the second of four servant songs, songs, extended poems that are related to the servant savior in this book, a a singular individual who represents the whole nation. And in the beginning of Isaiah 49, he's actually named Israel. The individual, Israel, is called upon to save Israel, the nation. And it's too light a thing that he would only save them. God will make him the deliverer, the savior of the entire world. And we saw last week in verse 15 that Jerusalem, Zion, this city that's representative of the people of God, is feeling forsaken by God because so much of Isaiah is talking about the judgment that God is anticipating in Isaiah's perspective to be bringing on Jerusalem. And into the midst of that, God walks through and gives clarity to why, assurance for why he has not forgotten Zion. So we're going to begin reading today in verse 14. We got through verse 20 last week, and then we're going to pick up in verse 21 and finish out this this unit. But as we start in verse 14, you see the question, Zion said, the Lord's forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. The sovereign one of the universe, L-O-R-D in small letters, sovereign, versus L-O-R-D in capital letters, which is God's name, Yahweh, He's forgotten me. He's forsaken me. And into that that sense of brokenness, that sense of distance, that sense of alienation, God begins to talk. So what we see is God claims, right off the bat, He remembers Zion. Verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Yes. Even these could forget at the most extreme of our, of our thinking, we can imagine a mother forsaking her own child. But God says, even if these forget, I will not. And the comfort that we were given last week through that verse. So the declaration is made and then God says, here's the proof that I won't forget. Verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. You're right there. And he's picturing a city, but it's more than a city. It's it's this representative bride. Yahweh is the husband. The bride is Zion. And there's offspring of this union. And The image that comes forth here as he declares his memorial, yes, I remember every time I see my hands. My wife reminded me, as as we went through this last week, she was just picturing the, the arms of Christ stretched out, the wounds in his hands on behalf of his 
redeeming of his bride, Jerusalem, his bride, Zion. We went to Revelation 21 and noted the the statement, the messenger comes to John in Revelation 21 and says, come, come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb. So I followed him and he showed me a city. Remember that? The city is the bride and the city is filled with offspring of this union. So, continuing on here, unpacking of what's exactly written on the palm of his hand, your walls are continually before me. Isaiah's envisioned the the destruction of the earthly Jerusalem, which itself was always only a picture. Exodus 24, when God first told Moses, to build a tabernacle on earth, which by the time we get into the land becomes the temple, which is representative of the city, the presence of God in the midst of the temple. I want you to build on earth after the the model or pattern that I show you in heaven. So Moses is up on the mountain, and he gets a glimpse of some reality in the heavenlies where God is seated on the throne... And what he builds on earth is merely a picture of it. And that's what ultimately Jerusalem becomes. It is the, a, a firmly placed, immovable location where God has chosen to make his dwelling be. And yet there's a built-in obsolescence from Exodus 24 on. A built-in obsolescence of this earthly Jerusalem. This earthly central sanctuary. It's, it's, it's just understood that if there's a day whenever the real comes, then the picture will no longer be needed. Yet God can address the picture, as we're going to see today, and give hope to the picture in light of the coming reality. Your walls are continually before me. When I look at my hands, I see a restored community, an established Zion. Then, verse 17, the ESV renders it, your builders make haste. And I proposed, just following the Hebrew text, the normal, what it says in the Hebrew text that I have is actually, your sons make haste. And the rest of this is all about the offspring of this city, Jerusalem, And I noted how the word for sons and the word for builders are very, very similar. Your sons have made haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste have gone out from you. All of these yous, yours, are second person feminine. Feminine singular. It's not talking about a people, it's talking about the city. The city. Verse 18, lift up your eyes, Zion. Look around and see. They've all gathered. They've all come. Who's the they? I think it's the sons, the children, the offspring. This vision is that there's a restoration, and this is what God sees on the palm of his hand. And then there's going to be implications of this. And that's what he begins to unpack now in, at the end of verse 18. As I live, declares the Lord... And the ESV doesn't have it here, but you see in verse 19 that adverb that starts the beginning of the verse. Surely your waste and your desolate places. That same exact 
particle, that small word, surely, shows up in the Hebrew text just after, as I live, declares the Lord, surely you shall put them on as an ornament. So I'm seeing two different things. The first one focused on beauty. The second one focused on growth. Surely this is what I see. This is what it means in light of what I have in the palms of my hands. This is what's going to happen. As I live, declares the Lord, surely you shall put on all of your children like an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. All the offspring of Zion that God envisions into the future, these children of Jerusalem, all of them will be like ornaments on the bride's gown. Fully identified with this bride who's the bride of the Lord. The city is the bride of the Lord and that bride will, will be adorned with children. There's beauty. But then it unpacks in verse 19 and 20 how these children will be vast. Surely your waste and your desolate places, all that's been destroyed in exile, in curse, in death, surely now you'll be too narrow for your inhabitants. Those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. I need more space. So here's a, a city that's feeling separated from God, empty, forsaken. And, and Isaiah's unpacked for us the devastation that God's going to bring on Jerusalem through Babylon. He's just walked through and talked about the devastations that they will bring. And the result is that most of the city has been absolutely decimated. And those who are left have been taken out. Babylon comes in 605 and takes King Jehoiakim, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He comes in five, they come in 597. They take the one who would become the prophet Ezekiel and a whole bunch of other nobles from Jerusalem. And then in 586, they show up and they level the temple. They level the city. But when God sees his hands, what he sees is a rebuilt Zion. What he sees is a completely inhabited city. In fact, the city, as you envision it, Isaiah and his population, it's way too small. What I'm envisioning is a, is a people who are cramming in and, and they're saying we need more space because the people of God, when I look at my hands, is much bigger than you can ever imagine. Think about the promises given to Abraham. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. So now we pick up with the Second promise, which is an implication of what he sees in his hands. The promise of a global dominance of this city Zion and the promise of deliverance. Let's finish reading. Verse 21, you will say in your heart, who's born me these offspring? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who's brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. 
Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you, O Zion, and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? Oh, yes. Thus says the Lord. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, O Zion. I will save your children. All of these feminine singular. It's talking about Zion the city. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One. Of Jacob. So we begin in verse 21. There's three queries. The image is that Zion's getting bigger, all these offspring, these children are gathering, and Zion, the bride, is wondering where have all these children come? These children of the Lord, where have they come from? In, it, it asks three questions in particular. Who bore these? I thought I was bereaved and empty. My womb was dead. That's what I thought. Next question. Who's brought up these? Who's raised them? Many of them are grown. Last question. Where have they come from? So that's the question. Responding to, it's as if it's already happened. As if... The Zion that God envisions on the palm of his hand has already been, is already a reality. And and Zion is trying to catch up, this this bride of the Lord, trying to catch up and wondering where have all these offspring come that I'm seeing, that you're showing me. And then God is going to respond, and he's going to respond declaring not what he has done, but what he plans to do in order to raise the need for such questions. These three questions, who's, who's born this multitude? Who brought them up? From where have they come? All of these questions are assuming that what God envisions on the palm of His hand has already come to pass. And so now God's going to declare, as if it hasn't come yet, what He promises. How is it going to come about? He's going to answer these three questions through predictions of how He's going to work it. So look with me now at verse 22. Behold, the nations are going to gather. This is how it's going to come about. You've asked, where have they come from? Who bore all these? He just starts in, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. That's non-ethnic Jews in this book. I'll raise my signal... To the peoples, there will be some kind of a a banner saying, this way, nations, this is where you need to come. And the nations are going to follow the signal. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. So we begin there. The nations are coming in. And where are they gathering? In this text, where are the nations coming to? Where? Zion. Can anybody think of any other spot in the book where we've had a vision of the nations gathering to Zion? Very beginning. 
Isaiah chapter 2. This is a latter days prophecy. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Jerusalem, where the temple of God is, in the latter days, it's going to rise higher than all the other mountains. And this is a vision. And when we see the visions, we've got to say, what exactly is he declaring? Is he anticipating actual geographical transformation? We see something similar in Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. One crying in the wilderness declares, Behold your God. A highway will go out through the desert. The valleys will be raised and the mountains will be brought low. That's geographical imagery. What exactly is he, is he envisioning a day when there's going to be massive earthquakes? Or is he talking about theological truths? I think it's that. The mountains... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations, there they are, will flow to this mountain. And many peoples among these nations will be saying, Hey, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? In order that he may teach us. We need instruction from the Lord, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. Why? Because out of Zion, there it is, Zion is this elevated mountain that the nations are going to gather to in the latter days. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, I mentioned this last week, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, only one time in the entire Old Testament, even though we see the phrase latter days show up, many times, the only time we see in the latter days in the Greek Old Testament is right here in Isaiah chapter 2. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is trying to give clarity to what's going on at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes down and people begin to speak in other tongues and there's a massive multitude of people who begin to hear the gospel in their own languages and God saved 3,000 of them, Peter cites Joel chapter 2. And when he cites it, he says, what you're seeing here is what the prophet Joel said would come to pass. That in the latter days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now what's intriguing is that that little phrase, in the latter days, doesn't show up anywhere in the book of Joel. But it's part of his quotation. And so what seems to be happening in my mind is that Peter is seeing I think that's a practiced practicing fire alarm that the kids are doing, right? Okay. So the he is seeing what 
is being talked about here. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The Spirit will pour itself out. He, Peter, when he's thinking about Joel, he's associating that with other texts in the Old Testament that are latter days texts. And he uses this phrase, in the last days, and the only place in his Old Testament where that full phrase shows up is in Acts chapter 2. Suggesting to me that in his mind, he's associating the promise of Joel 2 with the Isaiah 2 prophecy. That he's seeing this fulfillment, what's going on right now? What's going on right now is that God is pouring out his presence on a new Jerusalem, on a new temple. That's what he's seeing happening in Acts chapter 2. That the church that's being gathered there is a new temple. And that temple is going to begin to grow until it fills the whole earth. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. God is, is filling up a people. And those people will be his bride. So stick with me if you're wondering, is that right? Let's just see. I'm going to show you so many texts this morning where it says, yes, the New Testament authors are seeing the very things that we're seeing, reading about right now in Isaiah 49. They're seeing it being played out right now in space and time among the people of God. The Jerusalem that it's talking about is the people of God that's being gathered right now. That's where I'm, I'm going to show you from the text. This is my first illustration. Notice what we have next. It's not only that the nations will come, God will lift up His hand to the nations and they'll, they'll gather into Zion. How is it going to happen? It says specifically, He'll raise a signal for the peoples. Now already, in our book, we've read this word for signal. So who, can anybody remember from last spring or last fall when we read a text about a signal being raised up for the nations to gather to God in the latter days? Anybody remember where that, where that was found? You might even see it in your Bible in a little footnote. So specifically the word for signal. I'll raise up my signal to the people's. Anybody? Chapter 11, verse 12. Okay, let's see what we've got. Chapter 11, verse 12. This is how I encourage you. Just use those little footnotes. Track it down when you're doing your own Bible study. Oh, there's something here. The, the translators have said, oh, there's a link up here, a cross-reference. Here's what we find. In that day, what day is it? Up to this point, the first nine verses have told us about a spirit-empowered deliverer who would come from the line of Jesse. Hmm, I wonder who that is. In his day, he'll be working justice as the king, overcoming iniquity, and establishing a peace that will reach over the entire earth. The lion will lay down with the lamb on the mountain of God and there will be perfect peace between them. 
Now we read this. In that day, the root of Jesse, remember from the very beginning days of our time through Isaiah, what we saw was the entire people of God portrayed as a garden that was not productive. In fact, it was wasting away. The garden was all dried up and shriveling. But the vision of the future was that it would be like a new garden of Eden, flourishing, bountiful. And the first sprout of that garden is a man. From the root of Jesse, a new garden will begin to sprout. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him. Notice the signal that we're reading about here. The signal for the nations is a person. The nations are going to follow this beacon that God raises up like a lighthouse. Go that way. That is the way to safety. And this beacon is a person called the root of Jesse. A new David. Jesse was the father of the first King David. And behold, I will put a son of yours on the throne, and his reign will be forever. His throne will never end. That's what God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7. We've been anticipating this king. And here we read, he is a signal lifted up for the nations, and this is what we get, of him the nations will inquire. Oh, we need to ask him questions. How do we get to him? He's got something we need. He's a signal from the Lord, and his resting place shall be glorious. Wherever he comes to plant himself, think about like a throne in a city, his resting place will be glorious. And it'll be a type of glory that does not take any glory away from the Father. A glory that magnifies the Father. As we saw in Isaiah 42, what God is doing through His servant Savior is for his, the sake of His name. Not to take glory away from Him, but to magnify the glory of the One who was and is and is to come. In that day now, look at what we have. The Lord will extend His hand in the day when the signal is raised for the nations. The Lord will extend His hand yet a second time. For whom? To recover the remnant that remains of His people. So notice we have a distinction here between peoples, plural, and people, singular. That's between the nations, broadly, and the ethnic Jews in particular. So God will raise up Christ as a signal to the nations and they will inquire to Him and gather to Him. In Isaiah chapter 2, it's that ingathering of the nations to Jerusalem. Well, there's a person there. There's a, a signal there that's drawing them in. And then we read, right alongside of that, in that same day, God's going to do a second exodus comparable to what He did to Israel out of Egypt, but greater than that. A second time he's going to ingather them and gather his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise up this signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. What exactly is the connection? When we're in chapter 11, we don't necessarily see the connection. Now what we're reading is that the reason that the nations who are following the signal, are so closely associated with this ingathering of a Jewish remnant is because the Jewish remnant is actually being carried by the Gentiles. 
That's what it says in Isaiah 49. I'll raise up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. That somehow, when God envisions His future Jerusalem and His bride adorned with offspring, what He envisions is that in some way, the Gentile nations are going to serve as instruments of getting a Jewish remnant back to God, back to the source of their hope. Now, there's a little bit of mystery here that's only going to be revealed in texts like Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul begins to unpack for us And he even calls it, the mystery is now revealed. How those who were once far off have been brought and made one people, one new man, through the precious blood of Christ. But there's at least signals, uh, images here that are are giving clarity to what what we've seen played out and what Paul, looking backwards through the lens of Christ, is saying, this is what Isaiah was talking about. Now, Notice, he'll raise up this signal for the nations. He'll gather the banished of Israel. You'll say in that day, so they'll come from the four corners of the earth. You'll say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. That's where they've arrived. Nation, And the banished from Israel alike have gathered to Jerusalem. And now, with echoes of Exodus 15, the song of Moses, the song of the sea, in the first Exodus, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. (laughs) So... In Isaiah 12, 1 through 6, two times he cites Exodus 15, 1 and 2. Saying, that was the first Exodus, but now a second time has come. And it's a greater Exodus, and we can still sing the same music of our Deliverer. But there's a bringing together of the nations with the Jews, and together they're arriving at Zion. Now, up here at the top... In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That verse 10, this is how it's actually rendered by the Greek translator. There shall be on that day the root of Jesse, even the one who stands up to rule the nations. It's cited a little bit differently. Nations shall hope in him, and his rest shall be honor. Now Paul, in Romans 15, cites this exact verse and says, this is what's happening right now in the midst of the church. Not something simply future, something that's already been inaugurated, something already initiated, this ingathering to Zion. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's why he, he 
came in to serve the Jewish peoples. And not only them, it was too light a thing that he would only save Israel. It was also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, there I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, Psalm 1849. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. These realities that we're talking about, the apostle says, they're being fulfilled right now in the church. That the bride of the Lord is being adorned. When men and women from every tongue and tribe and people of nation gather in, linking arms to the ultimate Israelite, Christ, and identifying themselves with the bride, the heavenly Jerusalem. The nations will bring Zion sons and daughters. Look at the text. These nations who are following the signal, the Christ, shall bring your sons in their bosom. Your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. So, Zion's daughters which I think we're talking there about ethnic Jews, will be carried by the nations, all of them gathering into Jerusalem. Earlier, in Isaiah 43, we read something about the sons and daughters gathering in. Fear not, for I'm with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I'll gather you. I'll say to the north, give them up. To the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone, everyone who's called by my name, Well, are these sons and daughters, in one breath, they're the ethnic Israelites, but everyone who's called by my name, is that bigger? Is this in gathering? How how does it exactly relate, these Gentiles and these nations? Well, notice what Paul does, building off of this text in Isaiah 43 and our text in Isaiah 49:22 he says this What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Think about the temple. Where's the temple located? Jerusalem. That's Old Testament, right? And yet now, what's the church called? The temple of God. What does that identify the church with? A heavenly Jerusalem. Let's think about that. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. A new Zion. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Quoting from Leviticus 27, sorry, 20, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, and then Ezekiel 37, verse 14. I'll make my dwelling among them, fulfilling these predictions. Therefore, because I've promised to make you a temple, go out from the evil ones. Separate yourself from their midst, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters. And scholars think when he says that, he's got Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 49 in his mind. 
Since we have these promises. Notice that. This is about the church. Somehow, through Jesus, able to claim these promises, you and I, Gentile people, a part of the church of God, Jews, Surrendered to King Jesus, part of the one people of God, able to claim together these testimonies of God's sons and daughters gathering to the new temple. The mountain of the house of the Lord that's elevated higher than all the other mountains. A new Jerusalem reestablished that we are a part of. Now notice this. We're seeing a hint of this already in our passage. This, this bringing together of one family language. The nations submit themselves to Zion. Verse 23. Kings, remember the question is, who raised these offspring? Where did they come from? Who are they? Kings shall be your foster fathers, Zion. Their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, these kings and queens shall bow down to you, O Zion, and lick the dust of your feet. So, there's a very close relationship here between the offspring and the Gentile folks who are serving as the agents of the salvation of these ethnic Jewish individuals who are returning to the presence of God at Zion. So much, so close that they can be called, this is my foster father. This is the mother who nursed me. It's as if these Gentiles that are coming into Zion have have gotten new identities of some sort. Now, we see... Images of this submission to a greater Zion. Like this isn't about me being king. Kings and queens are coming in and submitting themselves to Zion. The bride. This entity that we're going to see when we get to Isaiah 53 and 54 is embodied in Like Christ is going to work on behalf of this body so that what he does secures this bride uh, with life, with new identity. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, Zion. Here it is. These are all feminine singulars. All of the wealth of the nations shall come to you. They shall follow you. They're going to be part of the adornment of the bride. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. I am not the king. You are the king. I am a servant to this entity called Zion. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other. No God besides Him. Foreigners shall build up your walls. This is... The walls that I think were envisioned on the palm of his hands. Not a physical, not, 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 not the physical Jerusalem, but a more higher, ultimate Jerusalem, I, I think. Foreigners shall build up your walls, their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. 
Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. That exact phrase is quoted in Revelation 21 of the New Jerusalem. That its gates are open all the time and the kings of the nations are led in procession to this Jerusalem. The nation and the kingdom that will not serve you will perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Think about If Jesus is Israel, Isaiah 49, verse 3, who comes, Isaiah 49, verse 6, to not only save Israel, but the the nations of the world. And Israel is a picture of the ultimate Zion. That means Jesus is representative of Zion who through his suffering is afflicted by the nations, even by you and me. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall come, shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Though the nations are the ones carrying instruments that bring the Jews back to Zion, they're also called foster parents, nursing mothers, as if if they've been somehow brought into the family. Look at Isaiah 54, right after Isaiah 53. And when we get there, I'm going to show all the links that tie these two texts together. Isaiah 53 is the substitutionary, atoning portrait of the suffering servant who dies on behalf of the many, and the many that he dies for, we're going to see in the text, is not just Jewish offspring, but those from the nations. And he dies in order that he might see and be satisfied in an offspring. Who's the offspring that the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is going to die for? When we know that Christ was never married and never had biological children. Yet he is married and has many children by adoption. Let's look. Sing, O barren one, that's Zion, who feels like she's been bereaved. Sing, O bear one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Where did these kids come from? Not from my womb, was it? For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Remember Isaiah 49, 20. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. We need more room to dwell in. 
Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Why does the tent of God here being portrayed like a tabernacle? That's what the temple is. A stretching out of the tent. Why does the tent where God's presence will be intermingling with his family members, why does it need to get bigger? It says, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. There's something happening here where the nations are all of a sudden being treated, gathered in as if they were offspring. Galatians chapter 4, 26. You remember that it's a little bit of a strange text. He says, I'm going to read the story of Sarah and Hagar in Genesis allegorically. Sarah is the ultimate picture of Abraham. Hagar is the picture of the Mosaic Covenant. Flourishing yet not chosen. Bearing a ministry of condemnation. Sarah, on the other hand is barren, without a child. Yet I've said, a child of her own loin is going to be the one through whom I bless the world. She goes most of her life without a child. She's been barren a long time. And all of a sudden, in her old age, 90 years old, she hits a baby. Great joy, unexpected joy, that it could wait so long for the promise of God to be fulfilled. That longness, Paul says, was like the Old Testament. All of that old age under the Mosaic Covenant. Hagar's flourishing. Her womb is fine. And yet, it, that's, not, that's not the means of provision. You're looking for someone greater. And now, in the old age of Zion, of Jerusalem, this picture of the people of God, there's birth happening. And Paul says... The Jerusalem that is above is free, not enslaved. That's Sarah, not Hagar. And she is our mother. He even contrasts, he says, the Jerusalem on earth that you picture in your mind, talking to Paul's audience, that you picture of your mind over there in Syro-Palestine, that Jerusalem that is going to get to be visited here in the next couple weeks by a group from Bethlehem, that's not what he says is we're talking about. He actually contrasts the Jerusalem on earth with the Jerusalem that is above. And then right after this text in Galatians 4.26, the very next couple verses, he cites, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. He cites Isaiah 54. The point is that his church in Galatians has a new mother. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, all of them, having been brought in. And these questions about barrenness and where did these children come from? It's as if, at one level, oh yes, they're ethnic Jews connected with Abraham, but Zion hasn't known them. It's as if they too have been adopted. The offspring, the Jewish offspring, and the foster parents are all viewed as part of the same family. Now, look at this statement right here. Your offspring will possess the nations. There's a prophet in the north at the same time as Isaiah in the south. His name is Amos. This is what he says. 
In that future day, I will raise up the booth of David like a tent. And David is these long, long, long lost promises of a Davidic king. In that future day, I'm going to raise up the tent of David. I'll repair its breaches. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Why? That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Now, the main letters in Edom, those three letters, you could put those vowels in, Or you could put those vowels in. If you put these vowels in, you get Adam or humanity. And the Greek translator rendered, instead of Edom here, rendered it anthropos, which is the word for translating Adam, mankind. Here's Acts 15, where they cite this very text saying the same thing that we see in Isaiah 54. Simeon Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Should we let Paul and Barnabas go up and minister among the Gentiles to see the church grow, ever expanding, not simply from Jerusalem and Judea, but now to the ends of the earth? Should we see that happen? James says, and with this, This idea that the the church could actually expand, yes, even the prophets agree. Just as it is written, then he cites Amos and mixes in some other prophets, after this I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind, in the Hebrew text, Edom is just a picture of all the nations. And the Greek translator just rendered it, mankind, and Paul just cites the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is, said James, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't put Moses' law on them, but rather see that salvation history has shifted from a time of anticipation to a time of fulfillment. When Jerusalem is already coming to earth, when that temple is expanding to fill the earth, when the nations are gathering to that temple. That's what's happening. The tent is getting bigger. A tent big enough so that the offspring actually possess the nations. Much like in our home, we've possessed two children, three children. Now we have three boys and three girls, three black and three white. They've gained new identities, complete new birth certificates. And our prayer for each of those three is that they would experience an even greater rebirth in relation to the new Jerusalem. Psalm 87 anticipates just this. On the holy mountain stands the city that he founded. Not an earthly Jerusalem here. No, this is envisioning something greater. Once the earthly realm is obsolete, there's stuff going on in the heavenly realm all the time where God continues to sit enthroned. 
And that Jerusalem is the one that Revelation 21 says will come to earth. It's the Jerusalem that Acts 2, Peter says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus is there right now, seated at the right hand of God in the palace of God. And we are there seated with him because we are part of that Jerusalem. On my holy mountain stands the city that he founded. The Lord loves the gates of where? Zion. More than all the dwelling places of Jacob. That's what he loves. He loves Jerusalem. The place where his presence is. And the place where his people are gathered. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, who knows this God? Who's, who's relating to this God? I, this is awesome. I mentioned Rahab. Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. What does it say of them? This one was born there, they say. Out of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Janelle McNamara, born in Jerusalem. Lori Evelyn, Evelyn, born in Jerusalem. Scott Jameson, born in Jerusalem. Jim Waldemar, born in Jerusalem. New birth certificates, new identities. Once been outside, now been brought inside. Once considered Gentiles, now no more. You've been born there. When my three kids were adopted, each one of them, even my daughter, got my name. My daughter's name, Satota Jason Deroshi. But it still said, born in her certain city in Ethiopia. Not these birth certificates. New name, new birth location. Completely reworked identity. And I think it's exactly what this text is anticipating. This is how the New Testament guys were reading these texts. And through Christ we can see that this is, this is it. This is how they were, and it's how they're calling us to read them. This one was born there. Well, I sure anticipated finishing today. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> Contemporary hip-hop can just unbelievable to me the amount of the depth of theology that some of these rappers have and the amount of breadth of their theology that they can cram into five minutes it's unbelievable unbelievable it's really cool questions or comments we'll call it there for today
Yes. Yes, so right. Micah chapter 4 actually uses the exact same words as we find in Isaiah chapter 2. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be elevated. But Micah 4 goes in a different direction. And we get to Micah chapter 5. Where's the king going to come from? Only place in the Old Testament we find it. Behold, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me a ruler whose going forths are from old, from ancient times. Ancient times stretching all the way back to Genesis 3.15. For sure. The prophets are all talking about this stuff, and they're pinpointing it as something that's supposed to happen through the Messiah when he comes. And the unexpected reality, as I said last week, is that what they expected to happen at the end of history intrudes into the middle of history. What they expected to just happen when the king showed up gets split between a suffering servant before he comes as reigning king. And that intermediate stage we call the church age. It's good. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are, you have the jurisdiction to claim those who you will and give them new identities with new birth certificates. Thank you that Jerusalem is our mother and that we have gathered, says Hebrews, already not to a Mount Zion glowing with fire and smoke, but to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. That's where we are right now. And we thank you that we're seated in Christ in the heavenlies and that he has all authority in heaven and on earth and therefore we are secure in you. Help us rest in that. When trials come, when fire gets hot, help us to know that you are for us and not against us. That you will protect your children all the way to the end. Help us not believe the lies that there's still condemnation, but let us celebrate that there is none and that you've claimed us as your own. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.